Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Autism Stories. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Autistic people are the true experts of the autistic experience, and Autism Stories is where we interview autistic people to learn from their stories, experiences, and get their advice. If you would like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We would also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review, as it will help others to learn about Autism Stories. It's just a little less than three weeks to go until Stimmy Vibrations, a day to celebrate Autistic Voices which will be on April 2nd. We have two more podcasts that are going to be joining us on that day. Uh, the first is Cafecito Atypico with Nahir Faharato and Fatty's Talk Back that has five co-hosts that include Caleb Luna, Mikey Mercedes, Deshaun Harrison, Brian Guffey, and Jordan Underhall. Nahir will share the various stims that she and her family members enjoy, and communication to ensure that each person's needs are met on Cafecito Atipico. And Fatty's Talk Back will have an important discussion on the intersections of fatness and neurodivergence. In order to hear these wonderful podcasts and to participate in Stimmy Vibrations, event, you will need to register, and a link to do just that can be found in the podcast description of this episode. Now on to today's episode of Autism Stories, in which Dr. Sarai Pala joins me to discuss being a medical translator, as well as we talk about communication for autistic women. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Dr. Paula, thanks so much for joining me today. Yes, thanks for having me on. I wanted to start off and learn where does your story in the autistic community begin? So this is quite an interesting one because originally it began with just trying to talk about having an autism diagnosis on Facebook. This gradually led to me talking about it on more social media platforms but it started with me trying to figure out who I was. Among the people that I, yes, back in the day when social media was very close and connected, it started with me trying to figure that out among the people that I knew, yes. We'll come to more of the social media stuff later, so I don't want to, I don't want to preempt any of, uh, yeah. <laughs> any of the subsequent discussions, yeah. but that's kind of how it started. Absolutely. So my father's a retired uh, medical doctor, so I was very interested to talk to you because you're a, you qualified as a medical doctor in 2005 with a bachelor's of medicine and a bachelor of surgery from the University of Cape Town. What was it that becoming a doctor made you want to pursue this field of study? So medicine, I vividly remember this because I was doing very well in high school. I was doing very well at mathematics and physics and biology and in a I think it was in my 10th school year I was actually awarded a trophy for the highest mark in all of those three subjects and I walked up on stage and 
the person who was awarding the trophy said, oh, this is wonderful. This is a great award. What do you want to do? And I remember reaching out my hand and saying, oh, I want to be a doctor. And it was kind of a funny thing because it seems like, or at least when I tell the story, it seems like a spontaneous decision. But I, I was very fortunate to have a very strong academic career. And I really didn't have any direction. I didn't know where I wanted to go and what I wanted to apply my knowledge and intellect and interest to. But having those three interests pointed out to me so clearly and so obviously and unambiguously, sort of, it just clicked in my head, oh, this is obviously what I wanted to do. And I'm so glad I couldn't have made a better decision. It is a great career for, I mean, just learning how we as human beings work and how we interact with each other and why we do the things that we do. It's fascinating, but it's also, it also has the potential to make so much difference in other people's lives. Yeah. Now, in doing some research, I read that you became overwhelmed once you started working um, in the field of medicine. What were some of the challenges for you in working in this field? Being autistic, it was the social relationships. That was the number one challenge for me. The ability to connect with people, relate to people, even just share opinions and be understood and understand others. I feel that I'm very disabled in this particular area of life and it played out so clearly in the medical field where one would expect that doctors would have more understanding for undiagnosed medical issues, but actually it's quite the opposite. I think it's more of a, it's a field where people are expected to give their best and do their best and being autistic isn't considered sort of the best. Mm -hmm. So... So I'm I'm curious. You use the word um, connect, connection, and you know I I've spoke we spoke uh, not too long ago for the first time, and I felt in that conversation like an immediate connection to you. So I'm wondering, when you say connection, wh what was the challenge of that, like with others in the medical field? So I think when talking to you, I think the, the beauty of our conversation was that we got to know each other by connecting on things that interest both of us. Mm -hmm. In medicine, I'm in an environment where, or, or at least working in a hospital where you're, you're under pressure to not only provide services to people who are in you know, the most vulnerable and challenging situations that they will ever face as human beings, you're also expected to cooperate with others in a way that allows you to, for example, as a if you're a doctor in a resuscitation room, you have to lead a team. You have to give guidance to all the other members of the medical team who are there if you are ineffective about doing that if you're distracted if you are uh, struggling with for example in my case overstimulation if you're overstimulated and you aren't able to respond in a in an empathic and constructive way and you and you for example you snap at people that's not good for the function of a team even if you can explain yourself and say look i'm, I'm stressed i'm wound up this is difficult for me there is a difference between intuitively understanding that other people need to feel reassured in the moment and having to learn or read that from a book that, oh, what other people are expecting is they're expecting you to provide not only leadership but reassurance and certainty that the situation is going to work out okay. That was all foreign to me. I thought I was just expected to be me, and yeah, it didn't work out that way. Now, you've shifted your focus uh, within the medical field uh, as for the last decade you've been a medical translator. So you translate Japanese, German, and Dutch into English. 
so I've tried learning a foreign language in the past, but a bit was was not too successful. Do you have suggestions of how to successfully learn a language? Because you've it sounds like you're fluent or close to fluent in a few different languages. This it's always a tricky question to answer because I feel like the in my case the real answer is don't have a life and be completely obsessed with language, <laughs> but that's, that's not a practical tip for everyday life. Generally speaking, my advice is that I think that people, so especially because of a lot of apps that we have these days and technology, technology sells the idea that it's easy and you can do it quickly and learning languages doesn't have to be painful or embarrassing for you. But the difficulty and the pain and the embarrassment, that's all part of the beauty of learning a language. And I think we have to embrace those things rather than look at them as signs that we're not doing well. The fact that you're trying shows that you are succeeding. Every time you open your mouth and use a different language, it shows that you're making an effort. And that is more important than whether or not your grammar is perfect or your you know, pronunciation is perfect. Yeah. So from my understanding, you live in Germany now. And, you know, in terms of learning German, but... Why did you decide, I imagine you speak German, um, yes. yeah, but why did you decide to also learn Japanese and Dutch? So Japanese is an interesting one because I come from an extremely linguistically gifted family. My mother speaks 15 languages now, current point in time. At the time my father passed away, he spoke eight languages. And I pointed this out to my mother that I said, I always knew you were a polyglot because whenever we went to different people's houses, you were always able to speak their language. You never spoke the same language around everyone. You were always switching languages. So even from a young age, I was very used to the idea that there was always going to be different languages around me. However, my parents used the fact, I mean, they taught us English and they had, they had multiple common languages that they could communicate in. And my sister and I were always a little bit jealous that they could have private conversations and we couldn't, We, you know, because they could understand the languages that we and their attitude was, you should learn a language that you feel drawn to. Don't learn a language because we want you to learn it. Learn it because you find this language and you love it. However, all of this combined into me wanting to find a language that my parents would find too difficult to learn <laughs> so that I could have private conversations and they didn't know what I was talking about. And it would be too hard for them to learn the language and catch up. So the European languages, unfortunately, are all too close to English. I thought that would be too easy. And it really came down to the Asian languages because of the characters and the, yes. So once I stumbled upon Japanese, I was like, oh, this is it. This is, <laughs> this is the one. My mom is never going to take the time to learn this language. I'll have one if I can learn this one. So, yeah, it was a bit of a competitive spirit there, but I think it was a very positive thing because even with Dutch, it was, we learned Afrikaans in South Africa at school. I didn't... I never used Afrikaans in everyday life, so I sort of forgot that. But once I came to Europe and I started coming into contact with more people in the Netherlands, I realized I had a lot of that knowledge still available to me. And it was really easy to build up that vocabulary and be engaged with the language. But I think that that was more of an extension of being here in Europe than specifically with Japanese, where it was a targeted effort to achieve a certain outcome. <laughs> like that. So, so I know many neurodivergent people who would probably love to get paid to translate or proofread documents. 
which is exactly what you're doing now, um, and you're you're self-employed and provide medical translator and proofreading services. What's been your experience and be able to get enough of that type of work to maybe meet your financial and career goals? So this is one of the fields that I can say is definitely expanding. This is an area of work that is growing and growing so fast that we're even, I mean, this is the popular misconception about machine translation is that it's meant to replace human translators, but actually that's not the case. The problem is that we're producing so much data as a human society that being able to translate all of that data is too much work for all of the humans who are alive today, and we have to help them by using machine translation. So I think that there's a vast amount of work out there, and particularly for autistic people who have special interests. If you have a special interest, you're pretty much an expert on something, and there is probably a company or a person in the world who uses something that's your special interest or wants to be active in a field that has to do with your special interest, who wants to globalize that service, and that's the key thing. The fact that we're all so connected means that having subject matter expertise in something and having the ability to express that subject matter expertise in more than one language is an extremely valuable skill that will only become more valuable with time because we are producing just huge amounts of data. So, yeah, yes. And if there are businesses or businesses that might um, be in need of your medical translator and proofreading services, how can they kind of go about in connecting with you? So I do have a website called saraipala.com. My contact details are all listed there, but I'm very, I have a strong preference for email communication. That's the best way to get hold of me. Companies can email me navigating to the contact details on my website and get hold of me there. Yes. So beyond the work you do, you gave a TEDx talk back in uh, 2017 that I believe almost two has almost 200,000 views on YouTube um, where you discuss women and autism within the context of dating. So one of the many interesting things you talked about was your thought on efficient communication with others. What do you see as maybe some ways that communication can be more efficient for yourself or other autistic women? So this was... I must say that this is a really challenging question to answer in a sensitive way. I'm going to preface this by saying I'm going to say it in my blunt, autistic way, and I trust that the audience watching this is going to take it in the spirit that it's intended. I feel like one of the issues that we have in society is that women are expected to give men the confidence to approach them. So what I get from, this is from reading books and what I've seen online and stuff. The idea is women in a romantic situation are supposed to signal to men some, magically in, in my imagination, are supposed to signal to men that it's okay to approach them. And that's really difficult when you're autistic because all of that signaling, all the ability to signal at all is not present. And I know that there are a lot of people who don't accept this as fact, but that's the truth. We don't have the ability to, we can learn to put it on. We can learn to imitate what other people are signaling, but we're imitating what we think someone else wants to see. We're not actually communicating what we want. And we, 
as autistic women are relying on men to develop enough self-esteem to be able to approach a woman, but also be able to understand that, yes, sometimes approaching women, I mean, this goes both ways, because it's not, this should not be a sexist thing. I'm speaking from the perspective of a heterosexual woman, but I believe that anyone who wants a partner is hoping that at the very least, they themselves have developed the self-confidence to be able to express that to someone else, to express interest in someone else. But I think that we are also all hoping that other people have done the necessary work on themselves to be able to approach us confidently and not force us to be interested in them, accept it if we're not interested, but also be open to taking things slow and not feeling slighted when we can't express the type of interest that society terms as being correct interest. <laughs> I hope that's been kind of clear, but yes, it's a sticky topic to navigate, but I think I think the first, we all have to do work on ourselves before we're ready to date at all. I feel like there has to be a bit more work done if you like to date someone autistic because you're not going to get the kind of sort of freebies that you get from neurotypical people. It's going to be a bit harder. So, yeah. So often the um, different identities or intersectional needs of autistic folks are not necessarily thought about. So I'm wondering, in what ways do you see your identity as a black woman affecting your autistic identity? Yeah, this is a really good question because being born in the global south and being born as a black woman meant that it was impossible in the country where I was born, where I lived before I came to Germany. It was impossible for me to get an autism diagnosis because there were two things that overlapped. One, people didn't think that autism affected women at all. So I had numerous incorrect psychiatric diagnoses. And secondly, there was a general perception that mental health issues were not something that occurred in the you know, black population, native population. This was something that was never really tackled because people sort of said, well, you know, they have their own explanations for it. So it was really difficult for me to even... I spoke to psychiatrists in South Africa who were absolutely convinced that there was no way I could have autism because I made eye contact. And it was only after coming to Europe and meeting specialists here who had, I want to say, perhaps had slightly more experience with dealing with a greater number of patients, because as we know, autism affects 1% of the population. It is difficult to be a specialist in autism, but my experience was medical professionals in the global south were completely close to the idea of autism and I had to come to Germany where it was more expensive. I mean, I was privileged enough to have the opportunity to emigrate to Germany with very little hassle. That's not the norm for women in the global south. I think we need to, or at least I feel that's why it's my responsibility to make a point of advocating for better recognition, better awareness better understanding of autism so that it shows not only potential patients in the global south, but also doctors that this is a very real thing. This is something that people in the global south suffer from and we shouldn't have to we shouldn't have to emigrate to first world countries to get a diagnosis. So and we also shouldn't have to be so severely disabled that people think that just because we are doing okay that we're fine. Yeah. So that's, that's been my experience, yes. 
Well, Dr. Paula, I really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for the conversation. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks so much to Dr. Paula for the conversation. To learn more about Dr. Paula, check out the link in the podcast description of this episode. Autism Personal Coach has been in existence for almost a decade now with the mission to help autistic adults and teens get their needs met and desires fulfilled. If you have an interest in learning more about how we can help you, then book a free call with me today to discuss working with Autism Personal Coach. A link for the free call can be found in the podcast description of the episode. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Autism Stories, and if you did, if you could tell a friend, foe, or anyone you know about it so they could have the same enjoyable experience as you when listening to Autism Stories, it would very much be appreciated. On the next episode of Autism Stories, we will discuss interdependent living. Until next time, I'm Doug Bletcher of Autism Personal Coach. Talk to you then.